0: Hey, everybody. This is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 93 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. My guest this week is Josh Rilko, and Josh has a Kickstarter that has 13 days left, I believe, 13 or 14 days left. He's a little over halfway to his goal, and we're going to be previewing some of the tracks and talking about the album and a whole bunch of things here, but it'd be rad if you guys went out there and supported this project, uh, and I know we can help make it happen. C.E. Jones, by the way... A few weeks ago when he was on, his album debuted on the Billboard Top 10 Classical and Bluegrass Chart. So that's amazing stuff. And I thank everybody who listened to that podcast and went to Chris's page and picked up that album. So some great things can happen. So let's do that for Josh here as well. All right, let's get to the sponsors this week. With Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Um, They have got the best lineup of mandolin instructors that you can find out there right now. You got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, Chad Manning. They have high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code mandolinbeer at checkout. Also, Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Go download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And don't sleep on their Instagram. They got a killer Instagram. So be sure and check that out as well. And Pava Mandolin's dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. And also, I haven't said this in a while. If you're listening to this and you're still kind of new to the podcast and you haven't hit subscribe on either Spotify or the Apple Podcast app or wherever you're listening to this from, please uh, hit subscribe. Maybe leave a review or a rating. That'd be awesome. And uh, be sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Mandolins and Beer. Okay, let's get to the episode with Josh. Hope you guys have a fantastic week. Cheers, everybody. All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Josh Rilko. Josh, how's it going, buddy? Oh, it's going pretty good. I'm just sitting here in my bedroom in Nashville, Tennessee. Nice, nice. Um, I, I got to meet you for the first time, actually, when I went up to do the live stream in September. And it was just awesome the way it happened. You had sent me a message because you saw I was headed to Nashville, and you're like, "Hey, the Station Inn's open up again. I'll be playing inside there." And we went up there, and man, it was amazing to see live music, and it was amazing to see the killer band that you had with you. And it was, it was—I uh, can't think of a better way to break the pandemic <laughs> live music streak <laughs> than seeing just a great band at one of my favorite venues. So thanks again, thanks for that invite, man.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, it was
0: awesome. They did a really good job of making everybody. I mean, you know, they had everything still kind of taped off in different places, but that was great. Yeah,
1: I think the, the capacity at the time was maybe 25 people or something, and maybe maybe 15 were in there. You know, <laughs> yeah,
0: <so. laughs> it was awesome, man. Yeah, so I wanted to thank you for that. So, And you've got, a, you've got a couple things going on, and one of them is the reason why I reached out. But one of the other things is you are uh, also playing mandolin with a new project now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just started playing with Sierra Farrell. Um, who's got an album coming out later this summer on Rounder. going to be an increasingly busy summer and into the fall should be should be on the road again pretty pretty hard
0: that's great and you just played the albino skunk festival here in south carolina we did and it was in full form (laughs) yeah how was it was it were the crowds good
1: yeah i mean the people were so excited to be there you know i uh, bet everyone was in good spirits the musicians were sounding good jamming around the fire backstage you know just like the old times
0: yeah that's awesome (laughs) And then the other thing, the main reason why I actually reached out to you this week is you have a Kickstarter project that just started up.
1: Yeah, just launched recently. Um, You know, it's a 30-day campaign for my first um, album of my own material. So, you know, it's a little little daunting, a little nerve-wracking, but... Yeah. See, throw it out there and see what happens. <laughs>
0: yeah. And so I, one of the things I'd like to you're the first person I've talked to who was who, uh, had a Kickstarter kind of going during the podcast. And for, for people who don't realize, you know, Kickstarter is something that kind of helps somebody when they're funding, you know, the recording of an album. And it's all or nothing. Like if it doesn't reach the goal that you've set, you get none of the money. It just right. goes back to the people who pledged it. So it's really important to kind of hit that goal. And for people who might not really realize you don't have to go in the dollar amounts, obviously, but um, you did this out of pretty much your own pocket for right. yeah up front during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so there was not a lot of income coming in from playing music. No. all right so let's, let, let's just set the level there and let's just kind of talk about the things that go into, I think what you were thinking of as like, all right, for this Kickstarter, here's why I'm, here's why I'm doing this. Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess it's a leap of faith in some ways, um, you know, to hope that people will be interested enough in whatever it is you're doing. If you do a Kickstarter, that they'll want to give you money for the product that you're offering or the services you're offering, you know, whether lessons or whatever. Um, But, you know, like a, a large part of the expense of the album is going to the other people involved, the other musicians who are full time musicians in a pandemic, um, the engineers, you know, the, the producer, um, all the people that help make it happen who, you know, that's their job to do these things. So I'm happy to pay them for it and then hope that my final product is, uh, is worthy of people (laughs) wanting to give me some money for it, you know, and, and then it all kind of comes full circle, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Well, you sent me, um, it's, it's part bluegrass, part Americana. And you mm-hmm. sent me all the bluegrassy tunes and one of the Americana tunes. And every one of them is great. And, and then we were talking about this off the podcast. Like, this isn't just a mandolin album. This is just, these songs are really, really good. You know, and I, I I can't wait for people to hear them. And I know those are just kind of the rough mixes. They haven't been mastered yet. And it sounds phenomenal. Thanks, man.
1: Yeah, the, you know, the Jake, Jake Stargell, Guitarist here in Nashville engineered the bluegrass stuff, and he's just got very, very nice vintage uh, Neumann microphones that do a great job capturing acoustic tones. And uh, then Dave Cinco has mixed it and is mastering it too. And you know, he's worked with so many of our favorite artists and the Punch Brothers and whatnot, he's um, done live sound for them for many years I think so.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, he
1: knows what he's doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you look at the uh, he was on the podcast of, um, a few months ago now I guess. But man, yeah, when you look at the credits of some of your favorite new acoustic albums, his name is almost always on there. <laughs> yeah. So who all played on the album? So
1: I the core band was um Brian Keith Hines from Mile 12. Uh, one of my favorite fiddlers here in Nashville. She's always down to pick. Um, Jed Clark on guitar. George Guthrie from the Wooks on banjo, who I've gotten to know quite well uh, through the pandemic because he moved here at the beginning of it. Um, and Jeff Saunders on bass, who I actually just moved into his house. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. Oh, nice. And, um, and the house I'm in was also where we recorded the tracks.
0: Oh, wow. Cool, man. Now was so, that the same? Was that the same lineup that was there when I saw you at the station? In I know Bronwyn and I,
1: I had my buddy Oliver Craven that's
0: playing right. guitar. Playing that guitar, that's yeah.
1: right. And then on one of the tracks, um, Billy Strings played guitar and sang.
0: Oh, get out of here, man!
1: So, he, so yeah, he came. I've I've known him for oh, I guess maybe since 2012 or 11 or something because we met up in Michigan where we're both from kind of running around that bluegrass scene
0: yeah that's amazing man yeah so i'm assuming um so you're putting this out on your own obviously doing the kickstarter
1: yeah just putting it out on my own um yeah you know i i, I maybe could try for a label support but i, I kind of just want to get it out there and you know
0: yeah i bet man now when you um you played with Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies did you guys agree yeah. on a, a label or was it um, was it all kind of indie released
1: all indie released You know, we we did some kickstarters with with that band as well um, over the years, so I've been a part of them before, but in the context of a band,
0: not kind of where it's, you know, all mine. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about. I'm I'm also from Michigan originally, and uh, mm-hmm. live in Charleston now. So let's talk about a little bit how you got into uh, playing mandolin.
1: Yeah i I was exposed to. Um, I guess it was more of a song circle in high school at a local ice cream parlor. My dad was going to it, and there was a bluegrass band that would show up called the Doodads, and they seemed like they were having a lot of fun, and they were able to play with everybody. I noticed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of was got a little interested in bluegrass at that time, and went and bought like a three hundred dollar Kentucky mandolin from Elderly Instruments in Lansing. Yeah, where where'd you grow up? What city? I was in Saginaw.
0: Oh, get out of here!
1: So I think right by you, right? Yeah, Aren't Bay, Bay City. City. That's right. Yeah. That's right.
0: Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. We talked
1: about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we're just ten miles apart. Amazing. But um, never crossed your path though that I that I know of.
0: Yeah, no kidding. It's so weird. <laughs> uh,
1: um, yeah, I didn't. I, I you know I bought that mandolin when I was sixteen, seventeen, and and I think I learned Angeline the Baker, but I didn't really, I didn't really put much time into it um, until sophomore year of college i kind of i was like oh yeah that bluegrass thing i should go find a bluegrass jam around here and see what's going on you know so i did and then just kind of you know became obsessed with bluegrass got the bluegrass bug as they say yeah and so that that was pretty
0: much that <laughs> that's awesome where, where was your uh where'd you go to college michigan state university oh yeah east lansing yep nice man and um What kind of uh, bluegrass were you listening to at that time? Was it traditional stuff? Was it newgrass? You know, the first albums I I really remember just kind of
1: spinning a bunch were that Ricky Skaggs' Live at the Charleston. Which I thought was just um, mind blowing, and and then Yonder Mountain Mountain Tracks Why Volume
2: Three.
1: kind of, I have, you know, it's like these two completely different sides of the bluegrass coin. Um, and I, I was very unaware of like, you know, all the different, um, tributaries of bluegrass at the time, as far as, you know, how they're all categorized as new grass or jam grass or traditional, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but then I did kind of, I got a Butch Baldessari DVD that helped me a ton when I was starting. And he talked a lot about Bill Monroe um, and the importance of learning some of that stuff. So I so I did kind of make it a point to try to go down that traditional path, at, especially at first, you know.
0: Was there, um, was there much YouTube around at that point for you to be watching it on, or was it still like CDs and all that stuff?
1: You know, I honestly don't even remember if YouTube was a thing, but I don't <laughs> think I don't think I was
0: really using it at the time. no. I was
1: I was I was I had all the instructional DVDs I could get my hands on um books and CDs and stuff yeah
0: yeah man, Butch Ballard that was one of the um that was I bought the uh album and new classics and the book from Elderly Instruments I still have the book over here still got the Elderly Elderly Instruments tag on the corner <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah I used to go there that was like a I used to go there like every 90 days or so I think just look at that wall of mandolins just stare at it like oh my gosh
1: <laughs> yeah I mean in college you know I was 5 minutes from the place so yeah. I was there quite a bit as well. What were you going to college for? Uh elementary education. I Oh, really? Went to be a social studies teacher.
0: <laughs> no kidding. Yeah.
1: I, I did some subbing afterwards but never did actually become a proper teacher um because I started touring full time, so.
0: Wow. So yeah, so how did let's let's talk about how you worked your way into touring full time because again it's you know, a lot of a lot of people play mandolin and never get the experience to suddenly join a band that can tour all over. So how did, how did that start happening for you?
1: Yeah, we, you know, we, um we were, you know, we were booking some gigs around Michigan, just kind of sending out our little press pack and whatnot. And what band and was this? This would have been, well, I guess originally it was called the Flatbellies. And then when Lindsay joined, we, we renamed it Lindsay Lou and the Flatbellies. Um, and we had played some gigs around Michigan and, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Nora Jane and the party line. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, we were looking at them and like, they're a similar band as us. And so I looked at who their booking agent was and sent them a message with some of our recordings and whatnot and told them we were going to be at Folk Alliance in Memphis. Yeah, It was in Memphis that year. And they're like, oh, great. We can't wait to meet you. We really like your stuff. So we went there and met them and did some showcases. And they said they'd like to book us. And that was that. They booked us enough gigs where it's like, okay, we have a schedule now. And and I just subbed less and less days until finally I just never subbed again.
0: Oh, my gosh. That is amazing, man.
1: Yeah, it's like kind of got lucky with that, you know, getting that agent early on, Um. That you know, that pretty much allowed us all to start doing it full time.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and for people who don't know the Folk Alliance, uh, maybe a little bit of background on that for people as well.
1: Yeah, it's a a huge conference in a hotel, <laughs> where you know three floors and all the conference rooms are kind of taken over by thousands of musicians and promoters and booking agents and publicists and just everybody. Um, and all the hotel rooms have Showcase performances in them till late in the evening, or early in the morning, I should say, and the conference room has have bigger showcases, and it's there's jams everywhere, and it's just crazy. So, <laughs> it's it's something that you, you you can't really explain it to people that <laughs> I mean you know it's just hard to imagine yeah that this actually happens without just seeing what it means.
0: So um so you get this booking agent and you just start just start hitting the road. I remember seeing your your, your the first time I. I guess maybe saw your name is I played at the band camp or competition in Telluride like four Mm -hmm. or five years ago. And I think that might've been you, I think you guys might've actually been on the bill. Would that be right? Yeah.
1: That, that was the only year I've ever been there. So yeah, it must've been, I think it was 2017, maybe 16, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It was, um, that was also the first time I'd ever been there as well. And the only time at this point, but it was amazing.
1: Yeah. That was, uh, we, we were lucky to, to have been able to do that. It's kind of like the
0: pinnacle of our you know aspirations. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and and so you were doing all of this out of Michigan at the time.
1: Uh, yeah, I think we were still in Michigan at that. Yep, we were.
0: No, no, we. Right, <laughs> I, mean, I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah. We, we would, no, we would have been in Nashville at this time. Okay, so there's, uh, what the move to Nashville? What kind of prompted that? Just was it to be obviously closer to business or?
1: Well, there is that there is the whole like, you know, it's um, I forget what the radius is around Nashville. That's you can access 60 percent of the population of the country within a certain drive time. Um, but that really wasn't the main reason we moved here. It, w- it was more like, a, you know, we knew a lot of people that lived here already. Mm-hmm. And so we knew we could move into a music community of people we already knew and kind of like, you um, I was kind of viewing it as like a like music. I never went to music school, but I thought you know just kind of immersing myself into the bluegrass scene of Nashville would sort of be like a music school of sorts (laughs) with all the great pickers that are around, you know, and all the great music of all
0: sorts. Yeah, have you had any uh, legendary gigs that you've seen in Nashville? Oh man, yeah, endless (laughs) (laughs) music. Like a like a top
1: a top two well, I'd probably have to think for a little while, but the one that comes to mind is seeing Larry Sparks at the Station in. I'm
2: heartbroken and I'm feeling low down I'm sick and tired of life while laying around the street.
1: And I'm getting tired. Something about that show, it was just like the energy was, it was like it wanted to explode, you know, it was, but it didn't. I mean, it was like, it was just, on, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah, feel it. it was sold out probably over capacity and he sounded so good. Um, so that was pretty sweet. Um and i saw billy strings and brian sutton do a duo set at the station and that was cool oh wow. yeah i mean it's just like it's just never ending There's done so many great shows i've been able to see just from being here and it's not it's like you know you used to plan way in advance to go see a great show and like here it's kind of like you might just find out about it like an hour before it happens you're like oh huh, yeah i guess i'll go to that why not yeah um <laughs>
0: So let's talk about the, uh, the new album here a little bit and, and, and play a few tracks. What's, what's the first song that you actually wrote for the album that you knew you were going to record?
1: Oh, the, that's a great question.
0: <laughs>
1: um, let me think about that. I guess it probably would have been the, the one and only instrumental. Oh, sweet. Ripwalk. <laughs> yeah, Ripwalk. up with that melody sometime at the beginning you know I I guess it's kind of weird to time with the pandemic but you know it's like at the beginning of the pandemic I came up with uh, with that melody um and I was actually doing some remote recording with Jacob Grutman from Front Country at the time you know we we only lived like a few miles apart but it was still kind of in the time when you felt like you should not even you should just you know everyone was so hunkered down or whatever they want to say um so we were bouncing tracks back and forth digitally and we we did make a recording of that in that fashion, um, with some various other people playing on it. Um, but that's not the one that ended up on the album. I re-recorded it for the album.
0: Cool. Now when you do um when you wrote the instrumental, do you have the other parts from the players kind of in your head or did you go into the studio or rehearsals with the song and just like, hey, what do you what do you think about doing something on this?
1: I mean, I had the arrangement in my head, you know, as far as when people are, when there's going to be hits, like fiddle and Mando are going to start out together. Eventually, there's a little bass Mando trade section, so I all that mapped out. Um, but as far as what the other players were going to play when it came their turn, that's completely up to them. Um. So that George Guthrie, who played banjo, he he recommended. Um, hey, what if what if Jed just comes in on guitar, you know, kind of like kind of like ala Bela Fleck drive sort of vibes and he just kind of vamps this this minor chord and the band just trickles in before the head melody hits. And so we tried that and it was like, oh yeah, that's definitely that definitely should be like that. <laughs> um, so so there was that that input from George there. Um, yeah, that's
0: great, man. We should mention there is that really cool riff on we'll call it BS Mountain for the uh, for the podcast (laughs) folks, but it is a cool riff. And um, did you did you have the song written before the riff or the riff before the song?
1: That was a song I kind of had a verse for, and then when I, I went on a little retreat to an Airbnb, and I and I finished up the the verses and the lyrics, and I was like, "Man, this needs this needs a head melody because the chords are kind of strange; they're not typical." Um, and I thought, "Would it be cool if I could somehow create a melody that sounds like it could be sung, but that works with these sort of off kilter chords?" Um, so I just kind of. Recorded uh, the chord progression on the guitar and looped it, and and then just started messing around until I stumbled upon something that felt simple and singable, and followed the chords and everything. Um, and what happened with that little melody and some of the other melodies on the album? Because I, I I really utilized the fiddle, mando, unison, you know, in, in more than a, in a couple of songs. <laughs> um, and playing with Bronwyn, playing these melodies with Bronwyn. I would notice she would kind of change them just ever so slightly in ways that were better and <laughs> it made, it made more sense under the fingers, you know. Um, so that was cool. They're, you know, little little quirks that just um, – she kind of made them flow a little better. So that was that was nice.
0: Oh, that's killer.
1: <laughs> She'd be like, show me what you're doing. I'm like, no, 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 no. Show me what you're doing. <laughs> like, I want to do it like
2: that. <laughs>
0: And then what is, uh, do you have like a favorite part on the album that like, you know, sometimes you're recording and you just get that thing and you're like, ah, man, I surprised myself. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, I think there's
1: a couple moments like that for sure. I listen back and I'm like, wow, I sound like a real mandolin
0: player. (laughs) (laughs) Would be be a good example of that.
1: Um, I guess. Going back to that tune we were just talking about, Rip Walk, um, when the Mando solo comes in, you know, I, I play the head melody in the beginning, and then eventually it works. It works around to a Mando solo, and Jeff Saunders, the bass player, um, started doing this walking bass line for the Mando part, and it just changes the feel and the vibe, and it, the Mando solo just kind of clicked with that bass part, and then Jed jed did this thing on guitar where he kind of did some percussive stuff rhythmically and i kind of got hung up on the mando for a split second and left a little space and then did like a triplet and it was kind of a mistake but the way that it interacted with jed's rhythm guitar it's just kind of one of those magical magical mistake moments i guess (laughs) (laughs) the
0: happy accident there's influences like Larry Sparks and different things like that uh, but also um, it sounds like you would be influenced by guys like Prine as well when I listen to your songs totally yeah definitely am so what are some of your early like your other early influences as long as you know as far as like you're obviously listening to everything from Yonder to Skags, but you know your songwriting goes a little bit uh, deeper I think than that too you know
1: I I I haven't written a ton of songs in my life. Um, And since I, for the last 12 years or so, like I've mostly focused on trying to play the mandolin and haven't, and didn't really focus a lot on writing until, I mean, every once in a while I get an idea and jot it down and maybe finish something here and there. Um, But I really made a point to dive into it in the pandemic because I was, I just had the. T- I felt like I had the time and energy and capacity to do it. Um, um, but as far as influences go, definitely you know John Prine and hearing the Beatles growing up so
2: much and. If you get knocked down by your fellow man, reach out your hand and call him brother. And if you see sad eyes staring back at you. You know what to do, love the other. I don't always do the best that I wanna do. In this way, I would guess I'm and a. And then just,
1: you like know, you. listening to bluegrass motifs and trying to use them, but then change them a bit so they're not the same rehash of the stuff that we hear in so many bluegrass songs which is great i mean that's part of the music you know is um you know singing about being lonesome or the mountains or you know
0: you know what i'm talking yeah yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely you actually have one song on there that you recorded two different versions of when springtime comes yeah when springtime comes one of the things i really liked about that one too is the way um You've got a lie or a word in there that repeats, but it kind of repeats longer, and then it kind of shortens up as the
1: end of the chorus. Maybe um, <laughs> talk for hours and hours and hours and hours.
2: Until, until then we can-
1: Musically, yeah, yeah totally. But yeah, people people like that song, so it's a great it's a song. Thing. And when mul- when there's like a song that seems like multiple people have said they like it, so it's like, well, it must be okay then. Yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's hard to when you come up with stuff. It's really hard to to know if it sucks or if it's good. Yeah, it's the worst. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's
0: just like because you like you want to love it, but you're like, I, I think maybe I only love it because I wrote it and it's new. You know, you got to play for a few people and see how they feel about it. Uh, I I would imagine you have some pretty, pretty killer sounding boards in Nashville as well.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, You know, all my buddies that I've played with extensively, I, you know, a lot of people aren't going to say, oh, man, that's that's really bad. That's just not a good, you know, people. It would be nice if maybe they would. But but you can, like you said, kind of just gauge from somebody's authentic reaction if they think something is cool, you know?
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, so like my friend, PJ George, who played in Lindsay Lynn, the Flatbellies with me for many years, he recorded on the Americana half of the album. Um, and I really respect his taste in music and whatnot. And, you know, I could kind of tell that he was pretty into some of the stuff we were, I was doing. So, you know, gives you kind of, uh, makes you feel like you're going in the right direction.
0: Was it um was it tough to decide to do Americana and bluegrass or was that something you had on your mind the whole time? I you know at
1: first I was thinking everything would be acoustic. Um, but then I was half half of the songs were just so songwritery, you know, more so in that more the prime direction or whatever you want to say, uh, that I just thought, you know, these songs would probably be better served by just abandoning the whole bluegrass thing and just letting them go anywhere they need to go. Um, So for those tracks, I actually had a producer, you know, who, you know, helped them come to life and whatnot. But with the, the bluegrass side, you know, I knew how they, I knew what I wanted them to sound like. And I arranged them and whatnot. And then we just worked them up and recorded them where the other stuff was much more like add layers and textures and, Different sounds and you know, accordion, synth, whatever, whatever the song seemed like it needed.
0: Wow, that's great, man! I can't wait to hear those.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a there's only I I guess I recorded six of those, and only one of them has mandolin, but it's a twin Mando part, so. <laughs>
0: You were, you know, you were focusing more on mandolin, um, you know, as your times up until, I don't want to say up until the pandemic, but kind of in that when you really started, you know, to work on tunes. What were some of the the players that you were playing on, or what were you like, you know, what would a day look like when you were working on mandolin? Did you have a particular thing, or were there phases that you went through? Because you're a fantastic mandolin player, man. Thanks. Um, Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You know, I go through phases of being more organized with my practice and, You know, having sort of a routine um, where I'd get up in the morning and kind of first thing, you know, try to do different scales and arpeggios and get the fingers moving like that and then work through a tune or something and maybe try to come up with a harmony part for it and kind of have like a, yeah, routine. And then other times I'm just so all over the place and, (laughs) you know, just willy nilly kind of just not really like I'm still playing, but maybe not as focused on trying to break through to some new thing, which I think is also valuable, um, you know, to just kind of play for fun and not worry so much about, I have to make progress today. I have to like, you know, turn the metronome
0: on and whatnot. Sure. Yeah. It's a grind. It it can grind you out if, if you you just do that every single day and force yourself like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. Well, you're going to hate it.
1: (laughs) Right. And you know, them being on the road too. um, you don't really have the time or space or energy to – well, some people might, but you know, everyone's different. Um, but to, to have like a real practice routine is really tough on the road. So when I would come home, I would, I would often try to snap into something knowing that I'm going to be gone again in five days. You know? <laughs> right, because
0: they love when you uh, woodshed in the van. <laughs> yeah, which i have done oh yeah yeah i've done it a couple times too sometimes you <laughs> got it, man i mean it's just yeah you know you get in your own little world and you're like i'm gonna go yeah. insane if i don't get to practice right now <laughs> <laughs> just let them play <laughs> uh, so how did you end up like crossing paths with billy strings
1: uh he was living in traverse city i guess yeah i think it was maybe 2011
0: mm-hmm. and i he
1: must have been 20 years old or something and um Our bandmate, my bandmate, uh, bandmate Mark Lavingood, Dobro player. Yeah, Um, he caught wind of Billy Strings. You know, because we thought in Michigan, it's like it's like you know everybody in the state that is even remotely interested in bluegrass music. Um, so when you hear like somebody new as a bluegrass picker, you're like, really? There's like another young person that's playing bluegrass, (laughs) right? Um, So we were doing a show up in Traverse City, and Mark arranged to go meet up with Billy. So we went and he was busking on the street downtown and we met him there and then proceeded to pick and party and whatnot ever since.
0: (laughs) That's dude. Just the, how crazy is the success level the the rocket ship that that dude is on right now? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. And I, and I, and I don't say rocket ship, As in anything insulting, like he hasn't worked hard because obviously that's not the case. I remember when he started playing with Don Julian; they were playing everywhere. (laughs) You know what I mean? The
1: hardest workers I know.
0: Dude, crazy. And to just to see like, you know what was it? They just sold out like three dates at that arena in Asheville. Mm -hmm. An arena. (laughs) (laughs) It's like blue.
1: I mean, you know. And it's even more amazing that it's being done with bluegrass music.
0: Exactly. You know? So um, when, you, when you get to Nashville, there's there's tons of obviously like bluegrass jams and different things like that that go on all the time. And what are some things that you have picked up at, in bluegrass jams? One thing I try to encourage people who have maybe not really jammed with people or jam a lot at home, that you got to get out and go to a jam and, and, and meet some other people. I mean, heck, Lee, you started going to bluegrass jams and this is what you do for a living now you know
1: yeah and i still go to jams too yeah um as much as i can um yeah i mean you know you get confidence i think is one thing that is i mean i still struggle with confidence (laughs) you know um like am am i good enough to be playing with these people and stuff like that um and i think jamming can you know can help you gain gain confidence to play around other people and then realizing that these people aren't Like they're not, they're not judging you as much as you might think, you know, when you, when you're out there playing and there's people of all different levels playing together and everybody wants you to be there picking, you know, they want you to get better and they, they want to play with you, you know? Um, and I think that's, you know, something that you can kind of only break through if you're just getting out there and putting yourself in situations that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable. And, you know, a lot of people are do feel uncomfortable in their first jam or or even their hundredth jam. Um, So I don't know if that's that was kind of rambling, but no,
0: no, that's exactly right, though. And I mean, and sometimes you need to go out there and I don't want to say be humbled, but, you know, you got to go. Yes, yes, totally. Yeah. You got to see those people who are better than you, because that's you're like looking at like, oh, my God, that's what I need to work on. You know, and talk to these people and be like, "Wow, how'd you do that?" I mean, everybody's willing to show you that at a jam. That's why they're there too. You know? Yeah, totally,
1: dude. Just last just last week, uh, you know, I go to the American Legion every Wednesday that I can, and the jam is the jam there has just been getting amazing, especially because everybody's still kind of around. You know, all the people aren't on the road yet. And last week there was just so many good pickers there, and I I, I showed up pretty late because I had a gig, and So I, you know, I sat down in a pretty, pretty ripping jam and, and uh, Jared Walker was there and he kicked off fire on the mountain at like, I don't know, 180 beats per minute or something. (laughs) And I just fell on my face. You know what I mean? Came around to me. Um, Uh, So, you know, whatever, just smile through it.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. That's great. Yeah, that's unfair though. Jared's, they've been doing all those live streams. He's, he's all, he's oiled up and ready to go. Everybody else is staying home, working Billy. Those guys have been doing all those shows. I mean, I'm just kidding. I love Jared, man. He's such a nice cat.
1: Yeah, man. He's one of my favorite players. Yeah. In the, you know, contemporary players.
0: Yeah. Just smooth.
1: Yeah. You know, I love his approach to bluegrass. Like he, you know, his, the way he plays the bluegrass is it's what I like to hear when I, when I listen to
0: bluegrass music. So, um, how how did you find yourself in the new gig? Um, like, did you have to go through like an audition process, or did you just kind of know Sierra? Or yeah, just kind of got to know her from being around town, and then we we lived
1: three blocks from each other for a couple the last couple years. Um, and in the pandemic, a lot of us well, not a lot, but a good handful of the musician friends started riding bikes a lot more.
0: Oh, how cool! <laughs> nice. So, uh,
1: so we've ridden bikes together quite a bit um and jammed and whatnot and she was looking to change up her band a little bit i guess and just kind of called me out of the blue a couple months ago and asked if i wanted to join her band and i was kind of like are you serious you know, <laughs> like, really know to um but yeah so i so i started rehearsing with her and and that was that
0: oh that's awesome man
1: super fun to sing with her you know we got we do trio stuff and. The harmonies are good. The vocals are good. Her songs are great. So it's been fun. That's great, too. Congratulations on that. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Looking forward to getting out there more.
0: What uh? What mandolin you use on the album?
1: I used a Weinman F5, um, which is a great mandolin that I owned for I forget three years maybe. Um, but I I I did sell it recently, and I now have an Altman
0: congratulations um, and
1: and i didn't sell the wineman because it wasn't a great mandolin it was an awesome mandolin or it still is an awesome mandolin. <laughs> you know but i, I get i kind of go to carter and play something i'm like ooh, this is a different sound you know i should try maybe go in this direction and see what that's like um so i found this altman and it just had this bass response that no mandolin i've owned previously has had and I thought, oh, it'd be really nice to have a mandolin that responds like that in the lower register. Maybe it would inspire me to, like, play down there more. Right. Um, instead of relying so much on the A and E strings, you know, mm-hmm. get more into the G and D strings. Because not that I never, not that I avoid them completely, but, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not, that's not where you, uh, most, most mandolin players don't usually live there. <laughs> you know? Right. You got the A and the E. It's kind of where you're at. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's like, you know, and those cuts, so.
1: Absolutely, I've been meaning to get over to Asheville just to take my my Altman to, to Wes because he knows how to set it up for me and um, he's willing to do it. Even though it's you know even though I felt with the lineman, he's he's still he's still down to work on the man do I have? So.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, I gotta, man. Got to
1: get over there and, and pay him a visit.
0: What um, what kind of stuff do you kind of like? What are you looking for to get done to it? To, is it like action wise and different things like that or?
1: Yeah, action wise and like. Um the main thing I always kind of adjust is the spacing between the strings. Oh yeah, no kidding. Um between the courses and then also between the the unison, you know, strings.
0: Oh
2: yeah.
1: Um,
0: oh, um what got you uh, into that so intensely? That's that's all, this is I love this nerdy stuff, man. Let's talk about <laughs> this. <laughs> I I notice I just like
1: notice how it feels under my finger and if they're too close together, it, it just kind of like feels like a little too cutting or something under my finger. And then I also notice if they're too close together, sometimes they like get pinched together. You know? Yeah. Um, and then if they're too far apart, obviously they kind of, what's the word? Splay maybe. Okay. I
0: just get, um, get weird out
1: of there. Yeah. Out a bit. Yeah. So, so I, I just have kind of started messing with that and through a, a few different adjustments over the years, I think Wes kind of figured out exactly where I like it. <laughs> that's awesome, man. And I know he's done similar things for other players. So, I'm, so I know I'm not the only player that messes with this kind of stuff. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The first person who's talked about it on here though. I think that's cool.
1: Nice. Yeah. The, the Altman I'm playing right now, like the, the E strings are too close to, together for me. Um, and then I also think if you're playing hard and they're too close together, they, you know, they'll vibrate into each other. Um, but yeah, but it's, it's also just that how it feels under my fingers, you know, if they're not where I quite, where I want it, then it kind of starts bugging me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what other, uh, what other mandolins were in your arsenal before the, uh, before that one? Did you have any others that you were digging?
1: Yeah. Over the years, I, um, I owned a couple Northfields
0: um, that were great mandolins. They're doing, they uh, you know, they are a sponsor to this, but man. They are doing great work. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, you know, they kind of were, they're kind of based out of Michigan. Um, So when I was still living up there in Lansing, that was kind of when they were putting their first mandolins out through Elderly. And my buddy, Picky Fingers Banjo podcast host, Keith Billick.
0: What's up, Keith? uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, he was the floor manager at Elderly at the time. And I think he's the one that told me about them. And... And then another friend, Derek Smith, who had worked at Elderly for a long time, uh, got involved with Adrian at Northfield, and they're kind of like the two the two guys. So it was you know kind of like a local a local thing at the time. Yeah, e- even though they're the luthiers are in China and whatnot, so it's kind of like a Michigan China
0: connection. Right, right. Yeah, man, the, their Instagram is just like just the most drool inducing mandolin photos all the time too. My like, <laughs> gosh. They're killing it. Yeah, I had a nice. I had
1: an artist series with a one piece back that was really oh, nice. Wow. no kidding. I sold it to a friend here in town. Yeah, those one piece backs are special, man. Yeah, the Wyman I just uh, sold also had a one piece back. Did it Beautiful. really? Oh. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. Do um, you have a set of strings that you like to use and picks that you like to use on them?
1: I use the Blue Chip Forty Eight. I forget the. I forget what the, I'm going to open my case here. Sweet, I, I forget the actual number. Whoa. Um. Oh yeah, blue chip tad forty eight. Okay, cool. I th- I think I may have heard that Brian Sutton's the one that kind of got them to make the forty eight. Oh don't really? Quote, don't quote me on that.
0: All right, so that's going to be the tagline for this when I did the little thing. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um.
1: And then as far as strings go, you know, I always use those Diodario custom mediums. Mm-hmm coated ones oh yeah and they just weren't then I bought this new mandolin and and it they just didn't really something about it it was like man this doesn't sound like it did in this when I bought it in the store after I put these strings on it so I just I ordered like every single uh, different mandolin set that Diodario sold and and just started putting strings on there that I've like I've never played on light gauge you know or or extra light or anything, but I was just like, I'll just see what it feels like, see what it sounds like, and I and I did notice like with the really light gauge, it, the Mando was like seemingly was more open. Um, so I just kind of kept trying out different gauges. Um, you know, I did the nickel, I did I did everything, and um, and finally kind of just settled on um the uncoated mediums, so just basic. The Adario Medium, yeah, string. You know the ones that I started out with on my first Mando many years ago.
0: Oh, yeah, so they're,
1: they're working. They're, they're working well on this
0: one. So now I've got I've got two more questions for you here, and yeah. um, the first one is it's 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 kind of a, a practice based one. And you've been putting out. I've seen you put out some really cool videos and and transcriptions on um, on Facebook and stuff like that. And, uh, if you could recommend something for someone to work on just 10 minutes a day to get better, like, and for instance, you can just for an example, use maybe something you're working on right now that you could work on every, like you would do for 10 minutes a day. What would you recommend them to do?
1: Oh, I knew you were going to ask this, but I didn't even think of, I didn't even think of a response. (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, if if I have only 10 minutes, I'm probably not going to sit down and try to learn a new tune. Um, but I often get in the habit of, you know, thinking that I have to spend a lot of time when I practice if I'm going to practice, which isn't the case. Um, and then what I what I find I don't do enough, and what I would do if I only was going to play for ten minutes is just think about tunes that I learned a long time ago that I just they're they're in me, you know. Just kind of try to, just try to pick through them, just play the melody a few times, and then just start to maybe try to improvise on it without a metronome you know not even worrying about that just like can i sit here by myself you know with no metronome and just kind of play this tune and do some variations on it start to finish without stopping keep the rhythm good keep the you know keep the tones good and just kind of if somebody were to listen to me doing this just as a solo mandolin you know would it would it sound like a song to them would it sound good from start to finish um, and I don't think I do. I should be doing more of that. I think just kind of seeing what tunes I can pull out of my brain, you know, without kind of warming up to
0: them even. Yeah. That's, that's a great one. That's the first time that has been, that has been mentioned on here. That's killer, man, doing the variations and trying to make sure it still maintains the the form of the song. Yeah. You know, yeah. I love it, dude. Yeah.
1: And not being like, Oh, I missed that lick. I'm going to stop and, and go back, you know, just trying to plow through
0: yeah nice no that's a that's a that's a great one do you have a uh do you have a favorite fiddle tune that you uh, like to play or is there a song that's just like you know like i always call it my music store song like if i go in i know this is probably what i'm gonna play because it's one of my favorites to play
1: yeah if i'm at a loss i just play big sciota <laughs>
0: such a killer tune man i mean you can't get sick of it you know I do get a, this is this is a good question for you, I think, too, because you do seem to try to go to a lot of jams when you can. And I get emails about this from, from people who listen and stuff. But how do you maintain the memory for so many like fiddle songs?
1: Um well, I guess, you know, listen listening to the tune and all of wh- however many recordings of it there are, you know, just listen to all of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um you know, because you know, then you just absorb it subconsciously. And, uh, and then, you know, when you sit down and learn a tune and you figure it out note by note, that process, especially, I mean, I'm not anti tab by any means, but, you know, if you sit there and you listen to the tune and figure out three, four notes at a time at a slow speed and you're figuring it out for yourself, um, I think that drills it in, into you more. Um, but then also knowing what it's supposed to sound like before you do this. So you're not just kind of shooting in the dark. Um, And I think those two things definitely help you retain tunes, you know?
0: I also, again, you know, like starting out and you talked a bit about this, but owning all like those AccuTab videos, buying all the books, I did the same thing, but Mm -hmm. like I found retention and really trying, like really figuring out why something sounded cool didn't really start, um, making sense to me, uh, until I started learning them by ear and just forcing myself to like, you know, listen to it a few times and then sit down and be like, Oh, okay. Because then you really also start to be like, you listen be listening to something on the radio and you'll hear something played and you're like, I know exactly how that's played. You know, I might not be able yeah. to play it as good, but I know what they're doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? It might not sound like that, but I know, you know, I, I know what the starting point would be to sit down and try to tackle that. And I think that just comes from playing so much or listening and then playing
1: all of the above. And, you know, like if you're going to sit down and learn a tune, don't learn somebody's improvised or like fancy version of it. Like find <laughs> the, find the basic skeleton of the tune and learn that, you know? Um, you know, I mean, for soldiers, joy or something. I mean, just dun, 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 dun. I mean, you know, that's like this, as simple as I could probably make it sound. Mm-hmm. Like be able to do that before you go. You know, right, right. Um, we'll pull up Saint Anne's real thely live, <laughs> right? Because <yeah. laughs> ideally, ideally, you'll be able to take that basic skeleton that you learned and embellish it in your own way, and not just not just copy somebody else's embellishments. I mean not that I haven't done that. <laughs> but but you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: like, absolutely. You know,
1: figure out how to improvise on it your own and in your own way and and be able to go back to the most simple version of it, you know, make sure that that's a part of you.
0: And you know the one other thing I meant to ask you about is your harmonization skills too with the um the, you, you know you some the tune with the harmonized mandolin part, but some of the videos, a few of the videos you posted have been like multiple mandolin parts. And, um, did, was it just like a fascination with harmony or did it, do you have a way you go about finding or getting the harmony parts or coming up with harmony parts that maybe some advice for somebody who might want to try to that, try to do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I love harmony in all its forms, uh, especially vocal harmony. Um, so with, uh, I guess the reason I was posting some of those videos and working that stuff up—at least one of the reasons—is because I was trying to get better at harmonizing on the mando. Um, you know, because if I can sit at home and kind of work it out for myself, I can figure it out. And oftentimes, I'll use my voice to sing the harmony part to figure out what it is I need to play. Oh, cool! Uh, while I'm, you know, I'll play the mando and then try to sing the harmony real slow. Just and then and then once I got it vocally, I'll then play that on the play the vocal line on the mando. Um, but the whole point of me doing that is because I want to get better at being able to just on the spot in a jam harmonize with somebody, which is some people are really good at it. You know, they can just kind of, especially, especially fiddlers for whatever reason I've noticed. It seems like they can, a lot of, a lot, a lot of fiddlers can just hop on those harmony parts on the spot for so many tunes. Um, oftentimes what happens to me is I, I start, I start the harmony part in a jam or something and like going well but then all of a sudden it gets to a certain spot in the tune and I'm like uh now I don't know where to go with this harmony line you know? <laughs> right um so that's kind of why I was doing that and yeah I just kind of figure it out through trial and error and and thinking about vocal harmony because I, I, I was in a lot of choirs you know growing up and stuff so I I've sang harmony for a long time and I, I guess I just use what I use that to figure it out on the, on the instrument.
0: Yeah. That's, that's clever. Well, awesome, man. And then, and then finally the last question is, is the beer question. And there's some, some pretty killer breweries in Nashville, but do you have a favorite beer?
1: Um, as far as Nashville goes, my favorite brewery is Smith and Lentz. Oh yeah. And they make a mosaic IPA that is very, very nice.
0: Have they opened back up since they, I know they were, they had some damage, right? In the, the tornado?
1: Yeah, they did. And I, they are open and they have pizza now. <laughs> oh, do they really? I, I haven't been there yet, but I, I should go. Because they didn't have food before.
0: That's where I um, did the live thing with uh, Tristan and Jared. Was that Smith & Lentz? Right. I remember that. Yeah. It was a uh, killer beer.
1: Yeah. it's And it's kind of like, it's not really in a lot of restaurants or like you can't buy it in the store, you know, you kind of have to go to the brewery and get their crawlers. And, and what about uh,
0: non-Nashville beers?
1: Non-Nashville beers, um, you know, I th- I'm thinking back to Michigan because they just have so many great breweries. They do. And, and, you know, throughout my adult life, I've probably, I could, I, I would have said Bell's is my favorite at one point. Founders is my favorite. But I think the one that I've always really loved is the Shorts. Shorts Humalupa-licious. Oh, yeah, I haven't had that one, brewery. but I love Shorts Brewery. And we used to play up there and they would, it's just such a great place. and Yeah.
0: Well, dude, it has been a pleasure talking with you on here. Um, I'm so glad that we got to meet in person and that I got to see you play what turned out to be like your first gig. I would, I'd I'd go see you again in a heartbeat, dude. I had such a good time and my wife and I, every time we hear, uh, she's no angel. Um, <laughs> I love well, that. song. I do too. And you guys played it and every time it comes up on like a road trip or when we're in the car, it takes us back to that trip to Nashville, dude, which is a good time. And, and the big part of it is because you guys played a killer version of it at the station. Inn.
1: Sweet. Thanks, man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um,
1: it was good to meet you. Yeah. And hopefully I'll see you in person here before too long. Yeah,
0: please. definitely, dude. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to listen to a few seconds here of one of Josh's tunes called Homeward Bound thank you to josh for doing the podcast head over to the kickstarter now you can find the link at mandolinsandbeer.com and go and help josh get this album put out to the public cheers everybody
2: Go. Life has its seasons. It was you who told me so, but I. Wasn't.